0: You're listening to the Greater Long Beach Podcast, where our focus is helping people to connect to God, change, and thrive in life. Observations, you observe things, you ask questions, and many times the key to science is not the answers you get to, but the questions that you ask on the front end. And typically, what you come up with is with something that is called a hypothesis. What a word. Uh, It's basically all the hypothesis is essentially is, you know, an educated guess. It's like a preliminary explanation based on observations, experience, sometimes even intuition. Now, the difference with science is that whereas a lot of other things out there stay there and actually get published on the media, uh, science takes it one step further. Science subjects their ideas to experimentation, which is now another set of observations that you make, but now under controlled conditions, because now what you want to do is you want to ask and answer, let's say, a specific question about this thing that is puzzling you or bothering you or whatever. As you do that, you collect a lot of information. We call that information data. Notice that data is also observations, but these are obtained After experimentation, sometimes this data is just descriptive. Sometimes it's quantitative. You actually put numbers to things. After several rounds of experimentation and reviewing your hypothesis, you may be able to arrive, and some people can arrive, at something that's called a theory. Now, in our vernacular, theory is like an opinion or perhaps a more informed opinion. But in science, a theory is a well-tested conclusion that can be confirmed through further experimentation. In some few cases, there are some, you know, really very smart people out there who have been able to find out what we now call uh, laws. And a law is essentially a very consistent behavior that has universal validity, all right? So, notice that sometimes uh, you, are, you have to stop at a certain point without even arriving at a theory or even a law. You know, one of the things with science is that sometimes uh, science has to be satisfied with not knowing the full story. And see, for many of us, that's kind of like, wow, well, they should have the answers because they claim to have them. See, that's not the way it works, okay? The other thing is, you know, when science... Uh, proposes a theory it is just that it is a theory however it's not just anybody's opinion it is backed up by a whole lot of information so you know it's not to be taken lightly uh in the same way you know when scientists discover something called a law like the law of gravity or something called the law of conservation of energy for example these kind of things you know uh the law is good to explain the data that is available at the time that is proposed. So for many centuries, you know, the laws that govern the movement of things and even the bodies in outer space all followed uh, Isaac Newton's laws of physics until the 20th century when scientists looked at the atomic world and realized that in that world, Newton's laws don't work. Does that mean that Newton was disqualified? No. See, scientists don't operate that way. They don't think that way. They realize that, you know, a law is valid for the universe uh, according to how we are observing it and what questions we're asking about it. So because of that, I like to say, you know, let's start by avoiding, avoiding sweeping extreme statements. And there are some of those. And I've chosen a few here that I've I I've heard over the years uh, on both sides of this you know, conflict. For example, scientists only believe in what they can see. Well, if that were true, science would have never believed in the existence of atoms. For example, you can't see them, right? Uh, people who believe in the Bible do so blindly and without use of reason. You know, there are many prominent scientists throughout history who have been total believers in the Bible, right? including Nobel Prize winners. Right? Uh, science cannot explain this or that, therefore why should we trust science? On the other side of that is, science cannot prove this or that about the Bible, so why should we believe in the Bible? These are sweeping, extreme statements that really don't help us move forward forward uh, to resolve the questions that I think we genuinely have, right? Uh, Here's another one. The Bible is just an old book full of fables and myths. That's another one. And the last one, which I don't know if it's going to show up here, uh, time and time again, science has proven that the Bible is true. You know, I wish that were true, that science has proven things in the Bible to be true. You know what? Uh, uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. The thing that happens is that people who choose to camp on one side of the camp, on the battlefield, you know, Bible only, and those that camp on the other side, you know, science only, like Esqueleto in the uh, video. Uh, typically, what happens is they have incorrect ideas of the other field, right? Sometimes, for example, when I read some uh, some uh, articles and stuff like that, I find that sometimes, you know, naively but sincerely, some Bible believers try to borrow you know scientific terminology so that their arguments will look more credible. But they don't really know what they're talking about, and so it's easy to dismantle their arguments. And so, you know, we have to be careful about the statements that we make. Here's the way I look at it. Science and the Bible essentially present different views of the world around us. They ask different questions and they seek different answers. So although sometimes they will overlap, many times they diverge, not because they are in enmity with, between each other, but because simply they are different types of pursuits, right? Right? It's like, you know, okay, compare soccer and basketball. They both use a ball. They both have two teams. They both keep score. But other rules are different, right? In basketball, you handle the ball with your hands. In soccer, you handle it with your feet. Does that mean that they are in conflict and enmity with each other? No. They just operate under different sets of rules, right? Uh, one of, the, uh, one of these uh, principles that sometimes you know, apologists or the people who try to kind of like uh, you know, build up arguments in favor of faith and the Bible uh, is something called the uncertainty principle. This was proposed by Werner Heisenberg in the 1920s, I think. And uh, it's one of those scientific concepts that sometimes people totally misuse and abuse. But here's something that he said. I like this quote. We have to remember... That what we observe is not nature in itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. In other words, science deals with things that are observable within the limits of the tools and instruments and parameters that science handles. Right, And that's why sometimes, for example, there are questions that science just doesn't pursue. For example, here's a big question. Is this or that behavior good or evil? So, you know, was Hitler evil? Well, science can lay out data about what Hitler said, what he did, what the Nazis did or said, right? But evil, quote-unquote, is something that is addressed by the field of ethics, not the field of science, right? Believe it or not. There are people out there nowadays that don't believe that Hitler was evil. So another question, what do you believe in? Belief is something that is not addressed by science. How about this? Uh, We just sang some amazing songs just a few moments ago, right? What do you feel when you hear that song? You know, science can explain how sound is produced, right? How it travels, How it is captured by our ears and all the processing in our nervous system. Uh, But appreciation of music and why you like it and someone else might not, just not in the realm of science. Well, maybe at least not yet. Maybe someday it will be. You never know. Now, in the same way that science does not pursue certain questions, the Bible doesn't pursue certain questions either. Like, for example... Is global warming caused by humans' industrial activity? That's a big controversy in our day and age. That's not a biblical topic. Can a high-fat diet lead to heart disease? Right? That's not a biblical subject. Uh, How can we become more energy efficient? Not a subject that is addressed by the Bible. Does that mean the Bible is incomplete? Does it mean it's insufficient? Does it mean it doesn't apply? No, it just means that it doesn't, it's not applicable to these things. It doesn't have to be because that's not where it's, what it's for. We're going to find that sometimes science uh, and the Bible will overlap in, in certain activities. For example, can we prove that there was a city of Jericho during the time of the events of the book of Joshua? You know, there you have archaeology, you know, geology, geography, all these different sciences can come in and provide answers to that question. Here's the thing. The answers are actually not conclusive from the perspective of science. From the perspective of the Bible, they're good enough, right? Genesis 26-34 speaks of one of Esau's wives being a Hittite. And the Bible mentions the Hittites several times. You know, for many centuries... One of the big arguments against the Bible was, hey, those people never existed. That's a fable. And then in 1800s, excavations in Turkey showed that there was such a civilization and such a culture. Matthew 9:17, Jesus talks about wine and putting wine in new wineskins, new wine in new wineskins, because the old wineskins would burst. You know, science can come in there and provide some answers to why that is. Does that mean that science, you know, oh, it's better? No, people knew this, you know, 2,000 years ago. They already knew it. All that science will do is give you a chemical explanation for it and tell you about, you know, carbon dioxide expansion, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what I'm saying is they overlap. They help each other out, right? As a matter of fact, there are some interesting things in the Bible that, you know, when you read them, you say, man, you know, whoever wrote this kind of knew ...a little more than perhaps a lot of the people at their time. For example, Job 26.7, which is a book from you know thousands of years ago. It says, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. That's very interesting. Many of the cultures, the civilizations of that, those days... ...believe in things like the, the earth rested on the back of a turtle... Or a bunch of elephants or a snake. Things like that. But the Bible says it's suspended over nothing. Which is exactly what it is, right? Job 36, 27, 28. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits from it. I use the uh, New Living Translation for that one. What is that? That is the cycle of water. Water evaporates. Condenses, falls out again. It's the cycle of water. Isaiah forty twenty two. Now this is a iffy one, but hey, I will put it in there just in case. It says he sits enthroned above the above the circle of the earth. Does that mean the Bible writers knew the earth was round? Well, I don't know, but it's, it sounds pretty cool, right? It's not a sure shot, but it's, it's close, right? I mean, at least it doesn't say that it was a square or that it's a not I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if the translation is accurate or not, but my point is, uh, as I will tell you in a few moments, that if the Bible is inspired by God, then it should be able to harmonize with the knowledge we derive from science. So that's what I think, but we'll go back to that in a moment. So uh, let's deal with three areas of conflict between science and the Bible. Number one, the existence of God. Number two, miracles. And number three, the origin of it all. All right? Let's take each one of those. Start off with the existence of God. Now, the first thing I'm going to tell you, and again, one of the things that's going to happen today is that perhaps because my son said I was smart, uh, you think that I'm going to have all these answers to all your questions. And probably what's going to happen is you're going to walk out of here with more questions than answers. See, that's what science is about. Because when you have questions, it motivates you to seek answers. And it motivates you to seek them in a responsible way, right? Not listening to any, you know, everything people out there say, right? Especially, you know, in our day and age, that's a big thing, right? The famous fake news and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we live in a society that's bombarded by a lot of information. And it's not easy sometimes to filter and find out what is accurate and what's not. So, I think it's important that we learn to always ask questions. So, here's the thing. Does God exist or not? You know what? That is not in the realm of science. So, some people will say, well, science cannot prove the existence of God. So, therefore, God must not exist. That's an argument we've heard. Well, can science prove the existence of evil, compassion, love? I mean, these are things you don't really prove them because there's no definition from a scientific parameter perspective of what those things are. It's just not in the realm of science. In the same way, you know, according to the qualities that God has, God is not a subject for the tools of science. However... Let me leave you with this regarding the existence of God. Now, how, how can we tell? Well, one of them is something that is called general revelation. This is a scripture in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. There's another one. I didn't put it in here. Psalms 19, verses 1 and 2, which you probably know, and there is a famous you know, Christian hymn that's based on it. The heavens declare the, glor- the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. You know, the universe, the universe speaks to us. It tells us something. Here in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, uh, in the midst of his uh, uh, text here, the apostle Paul says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. According to the Apostle Paul, the universe reveals God's qualities. The universe is telling us there's someone out there made all this, right? Now, of course, the theories of science involve everything happening through processes that are essentially random, random distributions of matter and energy that ended up in a one in a gazillion chance of what we have. But the reality is that if we are to take the simplest approach in looking at the universe, we know... Someone made this. This came from someone, right? There's a a design in it. This is what's called typically uh, general revelation as, you know, opposed or not opposed, but uh, accompanied by uh, special revelation, which is when God himself directly reveals himself to humans and is recorded in the scriptures. It's probably funny by now, just a little aside here, but we had this spotlight over here. And I had these transition glasses. So it's probably getting dark by now. And uh, I probably look like a spook, like a, like a serv- secret service person or something. So please forgive me. You can't see my eyes, but that's, that's what it is. Anyway, uh, where was I? Oh, so, so here's the thing. Sometimes I cannot interject my own opinions. Okay, So this, what I'm going to say is just my opinion. You know, when I read this uh, passage here, I don't know that it's saying that the universe proves the existence of God. I think the existence of God is an item of faith that you have to arrive at through your own process. It's personal, and it's ultimately a choice whether you believe or not. But if you do, if you have made that choice, what this is telling me is that, you know what? The universe reveals God's qualities. The universe tells me about the God that I've chosen to believe in. And so I can look really at nature Not like the new age kind of thing, you know, where you worship trees and that kind of stuff. But no, more like I learn from nature some things about the way God has designed things. And essentially it teaches me what is my place in all of this. So I'll I'll let you study that a little more on your own. All right. Let's talk about miracles. Now, um, the word miracle is used rather casually in conversation. Like it's a miracle that I passed that final exam, right? Or something like, oh, so-and-so has a girlfriend. Woo, miracles happen, <laughs> right? We, we use it very casually, and yeah, that's fine. Uh, now, in the, in the context of our discussion today, let me give you a very strict definition of what I believe a miracle is. It is an event that cannot be explained by the set of scientific parameters that are operative at the time and place of the event. Okay. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's say that I were to start floating in air right now. Right? Now, our initial uh, approach would be, where's the cable? Where's the wire? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a trick. Right? Then we might say, wow, he really is floating in air. It's a miracle. Right? Well, on earth. It would be, but on the surface of the moon, it wouldn't be. You would float because the gravity of the moon is a lot less. So that's what I'm saying is you have to kind of limit it to the time and place of the event. And again, it's not that it cannot happen or, or that it can happen. It's more, can it be explained by the parameters of science that are operating at that time and place? So by default, they're outside the realm of science. You know, if, a, if an event that's quote-unquote miraculous is uh, available for observation, scientists can go in and, you know, kind of assess whether it is a miracle or not, or whether it's a trick or a coincidence or whatever. Uh, sometimes what scientists will simply do is say, you know, we have no scientific explanation for the event. And from a science perspective, that's okay. There doesn't have to be an explanation. But what has happened is that before arriving at that answer, there has been a process like the one I mentioned before. It's not just arbitrarily you know, throwing up your arms in the air and saying, oh, can't explain it, that's it. No, no, it doesn't happen that way. Science does not acknowledge ignorance of an explanation uh, without having already gone to a rigorous through a rigorous process of examination. Right? You no, know, miracles in the Bible are recorded. They are, you know, historically documented events. Ultimately, they were recorded by uh, people who were either eyewitnesses or recorded the testimony of eyewitnesses. You would have to use other methods to you know, ascertain their validity. It's kind of like when a person goes to court, right, and you have to prove their innocence or their guilt, right? In, in our society, you prove their guilt. In other societies, you prove their innocence. But the point is, most of the process involves essentially – questioning witnesses looking at evidence sometimes the evidence is simply circumstantial in other words there is perhaps no way of telling you know who's telling the truth or not and yet courts typically arrive at some conclusion right because they believe that that line of questioning and you know evidence gathering is valid enough to establish you know within a certain limit of you know doubt or whatever, within reasonable doubt, uh, what happened? You know, there's, we don't argue with that, right? We don't have a problem with that. But yet, we have a problem with, you know, 500 people testifying that they saw Jesus resurrected. What's the problem with that, right? You know, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the historical events more heavily documented and studied. You know, there's different approaches, You know, historians and journalists will use different approaches to validate, you know, what happened in some event that perhaps are not what we would call physical sciences. And yet, you know, we don't question them, right? We don't question that, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, sailed out from the old world into the new world and did all these things. Uh, We have just documents and witness accounts. We believe them, right? Well, anyway... That's what I'm saying. Ultimately, the belief in miracles—and I'm talking right now, not about present day—I'm talking about the ones in the Bible. It is a matter of faith, and faith is a personal thing. All right. Okay, let's talk about the last one here. This is the origins. So this is the current scientific model. The universe had a beginning. It's called the—the uh, event is called the Big Bang. And that was around 13.8 billion years ago. The earth was formed somewhere around 4.5 billion years ago. With life starting more or less about 4 billion years ago, humans show up on the, surf, no, on the planet around 200,000 years ago. Of course, the big controversy is, well, how did life begin? And there you have the big you know, creation versus evolution debate and unfortunately that's outside my scope of expertise uh so i'm not going to talk about that but i'm going to put down some foundations for you some principles and what i'm going to do is i'm going to go to the bible's side of that equation which is of course the book of genesis and many of us have at least you know kind of read through the book of genesis perhaps not understanding all of it. Uh, Some of us believe it, you know, totally blindly. Some of us have some doubts about it. That's fine. No problem. Like I said, the main thing is, are we asking the questions? And are we seeking answers? Or are we just putting those questions up as a smokescreen? Like Paul said, you know, men are without excuse. But we sometimes try to make an excuse, right? So here are the here are three major uh, views or approaches to the Book of Genesis. Number one, it's just a myth; it's all metaphorical. You're not supposed to believe anything in it literally because it's just like it's like like a poem, right? The second view is a true believer should accept the Genesis account literally. In other words, yes, it was. Everything was made in six literal 24-hour day periods in the order it says there. And yes, God made the sun and the moon after he had already made the light. You have to believe all that if you're a true believer. It's a very extreme position. Thirdly, uh, the Genesis account is compatible with scientific data, but it is ultimately a literary expression, right? Uh, And, of course, there are other points of view, combinations of these. I I would say these are the three, you know, kind of standard uh, positions about the book of Genesis. Uh, Is everything in the Bible meant to be taken literally? That's a big question. Is everything in the Bible meant to be taken literally? Here's what it says in Isaiah 52, verse 10. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Okay, so does that mean that God's going to basically, you know, pull up his sleeves and show his arm out there? So I have a lot of questions about that. Is it going to be white? Is it going to be black? Is it going to be orange? Uh, is it going to be a hairy arm? Is it going to be metro? Is it going to have a ring in it, or does it have fingerprints? Can you fingerprint God? See what I'm saying? There are times when if you take the Bible literally, uh, you come up with some very absurd conclusions. Well, maybe because that was not meant to be taken literally. Wow. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that in context is it's literature, right? It's literature. It's meant to be taken as literature. There is figurative language in the Bible. You have to be responsible when you study it, right? Uh, So my idea is, uh, point number two here, it is not heresy, it's not heretical, to consider that perhaps the account in Genesis doesn't have to be literal. Now, I think the account in Genesis... Does have figurative, perhaps primitive language, but I believe that the core narrative is accurate. That's what I think. The core of that narrative is accurate. What is, you know, literary or figurative, or whatever, is the language in which it is presented. In the same way, the first point is just a myth or purely metaphorical. You know, A lot of the Bible is so realistic that it's hard to take it that way. The Bible's heroes are all presented both their strengths and their shortcomings. Many times, the highlight of their lives is actually the times they fail as opposed to the times they were triumphant. The Bible does not hold back any punches about judgments on behaviors that are considered to be sinful doesn't hold back. The Bible is realistic about, you know, the heights and depths of the history of Israel. Uh, It's very realistic and many times appeals to historical records, some of which have been confirmed, some of which haven't. So if you look at the Bible as a textual critic, you realize that whether you believe or not that the text we have in front of us is the real one or not, the original one one or not, it it is obvious that there is a consistent attempt to show that you are recording events that happened, not making things up. Anyway, that's what I think. So I'm going to land on the third position here. The Genesis account is compatible with scientific data, but ultimately it is a literary expression. So a lot of this has to do with what is my perspective of the Bible. Again, you might not share that perspective with me, right? It's something you had to arrive at. But here's where I've arrived. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I believe is that what is written in the Bible is what God wanted to be in there. He is the one that directed it. He choreographed the whole thing. I don't know if he gave the writers the exact words, you know, to the, you know, thing. Because remember, we're reading a translation anyway. We're not reading the original text. Uh, I don't know if that's the way it worked. I don't know if he told them and then they wrote it down. I don't know if they simply took in the experiences, wrote down, and as they wrote, the Holy Spirit was actually leading them to what they said. I don't know how that works. But what I know is that there's a core principle in here. The core principle is the Bible is inspired by God, and therefore we must listen and obey it. I think that's the core principle of the Bible. You know, even when you approach interpreting the Bible, this is a field called hermeneutics. That field itself has a scientific method. There are parameters, there are methods, there are rules as to the interpretation of the Bible. You know, we would like to, you know, put out, oh, what matters is what it says to me personally. It doesn't work that way. There is, (coughs) I'm sorry, there is a consistent message in there, and we need to learn how to extract it before we start going off on the tangent of all the things that it says to us personally, right? So, the way I look at it is, if the Bible is from God, then we should expect it to be accurate. After all, if God is the one that made everything, then, you know, what he made should be consistent with what he said, right? Uh, Now, not everything that's in the Bible might be proven by scientific research, or at least not yet. But it should be in agreement with what we know about the universe. And at least, at the very least, even if they differ a little bit, the Bible should not contradict So let's do this. Let's go ahead and open the book of Genesis, chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you. Look, I have a real Bible here. Isn't that interesting? Look, with pages and everything. Yeah. And big prints. I can see it. So the first thing is, when you read the book of Genesis, understand this is not a science textbook. This is not about science. The book of Genesis was probably written down during the time of the Exodus when Israel was leaving Egypt after centuries of slavery, establishing themselves as a new nation, trying to seek their identity. They needed a foundation of faith and an understanding of what was their role in God's plan. The Genesis account was meant to essentially remind them of their identity. And of the fact that God had been intervening in history from the beginning to bring about this nation on the earth. Although later on we learn it was not just about bringing this nation. It was about bringing the Messiah through them. All right. So what is the purpose of this Genesis account? Number one, to highlight the power and sovereignty of God, especially in view of all these other nations around Israel and their gods. Number two, to show that the world is the result of divinely directed process, not just mere, you know, this God got mad at that one and spit at them and out of the, the God's spit came out the oceans and stuff like that. that. That's not the story here, right? Number three, to highlight the spiritual nature of mankind. This is really what the book of Genesis is about. It's a spiritual narrative above all, not a science text. Uh, It talks about the consequences of sin, people's need to connect with God, right? So uh, if you take that point of view, let's say that you are just a spectator. And you are essentially standing, let's say, uh, you know, kind of like, on the edge of a solid surface with, you know, something called the deep, which is what they called the ocean, essentially. And it's all pitch dark, right? All right. And, and then it says, you know, G- Genesis 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. All right. Then if I jump down to verse 14, it says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And you go, wait a minute. How was there light and day and evening and morning if the sun and moon didn't exist still? can't do that, right? But again, remember, this is not a science textbook. So let's take it a different way. Let's say you are standing on the surface of the earth during this process, and all there is is darkness. You know there's water because you're going to hear it around, right? Why is it all dark? Well, according to science, in the beginning, you know, the whole earth is wrapped in this thick vapor of gases and steam and what have you. You can't see anything. It's all dark. But as the earth cools down, that layer of mist and vapor starts thinning out until the light from the sun can start kinda of like filtering through. Now you don't see the sun, all you send, you see is this, you know, kinda of like dim light and then it goes away, then it comes back and it goes away. Okay, so day and night. But it is only until later in the process that those, you know, vapors, that steam, whatever you call it, actually condense enough to where, you know, what we call the sky is revealed. And then you can actually see the source of that light that you were seeing already. But now you see it, you know, you see the sun, you see the moon, and you actually see the stars at night which you couldn't see before. See what I'm saying? Although the description that it gives us here is not scientific, because it's never meant to be that way. It does fit, it is compatible with the timeline that science has proposed. Again, are these, you know, day, first day, second day, third day, are these literal 24 hour days? You know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> the author is just describing a sequence of scenes in a way that is easily understood, you know, with no complex language. It is essentially readily remembered by people. You know, it's kind of like a story you can tell over and over again. Uh, And what it tells us is there is order, there is design, there is something that all of this is leading to, and it is what happens right on the sixth day, which is when God creates man. How that happens, you know, Book of Genesis is not about the science in how this all happened. It's more about, you know, what the meaning of it is initially for the people of Israel marching out to the promised land and forging their identity as a nation and eventually for each one of us as to where we came from, who we are, and what we are destined for. All right? I wish I could go these topics in more detail if you want to. Uh, you can go to this uh, website. It's called Evidence for Christianity. Sorry, it's going to blur it out, but evidenceforchristianity.org. It's a website maintained by the Apologetics Research Society. It's a group of people. I'm, I'm part of that group. Uh, and a lot of these materials are put together here by Dr. John Oakes. He's a professor of chemistry and a brother in the San Diego Church who travels around the world giving lectures on these topics. You know, he really is the expert, not me. So what I've given you today is essentially like groundwork, like a foundation from where I think you can launch your own studies and questions. And, of course, after we finish here, I'll be around. If you want to ask me some specific questions, you know, I might have an answer, maybe not. But uh, at least we we can talk, right? So in conclusion, the Bible and science address different issues and different questions. Sometimes they are in agreement. Sometimes they are not. But here's the thing, and I'm a testimony of this. A scientist can be a believer, and a believer can also be a scientist. As long as we acknowledge, you know, there's, there's boundaries. There's areas where one area can go into and the other one can't, and vice versa. And I think that's what is important, all right? So what I'd like for us to do now in the next few moments is to take time to think about what God has done in our lives and as we do that we will celebrate communion together Uh, going back to genesis the real story of genesis is not really the creation although of course you know we make it a huge deal the real story in genesis is what happened to man and what happened to man was that he started off being placed in an ideal relationship with god with everything around him perfect and he disobeyed God. And as a consequence of that, we read in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. What a tragedy. But what's interesting about this is when God made the earth in Genesis 1, it talks about him making all kinds of fruit-bearing and seed-bearing plants. And now, after man's sin, it's thorns and thistles. And I have this thing that has sometimes impacted my faith a lot, is the idea that somehow in some way not only man got cursed but the whole universe got cursed because of it in other words the world that we observe today that world that science reaches out to is not the one that god created it was never meant to be that way people ask why is there suffering why is there pain why is there disease you know what Those things in God's original design probably had a, you know, those bugs, those viruses, maybe had a different purpose. It wasn't meant to be that way, but it got all changed. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Isn't that powerful, brothers and sisters? We are in bondage to sin. And Jesus died for us. But not only that, all of creation is in bondage. The universe is held captive because of sin. The world that we see is not the one God created. It is a world that is in captivity because of sin. Now, people will sometimes say, well, you know, if God knew that that was going to happen, why didn't He just fix it from the start? Or some people will say, well, you know, God made everything perfect, then Adam and Eve messed it up, and then God had to go fix it. That's not the narrative in the Bible. This is the narrative Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Praise be to God and the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen to that. But look at this for he chose us in him before, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. You know, the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's life in it, that was not God's ultimate plan. It was just a dress rehearsal. It was just kind of like a foreshadowing of god's ultimate uh purpose we were chosen before the creation of the world it was god's plan that yes we would be in perfect harmony with him and all creation would be in perfect harmony but that was meant for after christ christ is the one his sacrifice and his resurrection are the ones that bring everything together we, are, we were never meant for this world that we live in. We're meant for a much better world. We call it heaven, right? But that's what God predestined us for. That's where we really belong. That is the quote-unquote universe that God always had in mind, not the one we're living in now. This is just transitional. And so because of that, let us celebrate that because of Christ's sacrifice, someday... We're going to be there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for taking us on this brief tour of your scriptures and reminding us of how powerful you are. But most of all, how deep and how intense is the love you have for us and how powerful this vision that you have that someday we will be in perfect harmony with you and with all of the universe just because of the incredible sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. We praise him. We thank you for his sacrifice and pray that we can do our best to live in a way that honors him and proclaims him to people around us. Thank you for the faith that we have. Sometimes it's weak, but above that, there is a more powerful force, and that is the love of God. That you have for us thank you thank you for listening to the greater long beach podcast for more information about our church please visit greaterlongbeachchurch.com